Well, brothers and sisters, if you would remain standing and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, and we will continue our study of the engagement our Lord had with the rich young ruler. And before I read from God's holy word, let's ask for his blessing. Now, Father, we do come in the sweet and blessed name of Jesus, a name that saves, a name that restores that which was lost, that which was broken, a name that gives the power, O Lord, for the obedience that we threw away in Adam. So, Father, come now into the preaching of the gospel this morning with this engagement with the rich young ruler and open our eyes and help us to understand and help us to see, Father, just more clearly the gospel itself, but also the use of your law. And why is it important? And Lord, why is it needed to, in order to break that, that strength of self-righteousness? So Lord, come and teach us and build us up in true knowledge and holiness, we pray for Christ's sake, amen. And beloved, I wanna begin reading at verse 18. And a ruler questioned him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, and why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus heard this, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell what you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they heard it, and they who heard it said, well, then who can be saved? But he said, these things that are impossible with People are possible with God. And Peter said, Behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, I'm glad we do have the privilege, the opportunity to spend more time in this passage of Scripture, um, rolling it over and making sure that we uh, not just exalt, exhaust the teaching itself, that's not the goal, but to really understand the engagement here and so that we have and possess a clearer understanding of our own salvation and what true salvation is. That's always important. 
I mean, we read in the text that even the disciples, when they heard Jesus' engagement with the rich young ruler, they were somewhat surprised by Jesus' own words. And they were walking with him. They had spent years with him at, up to this point. And you can even see their weaknesses being revealed in the text itself. So I don't apologize for spending more time in this passage of scripture for us to get a solid grasp upon the gospel and upon eternal life and the use of the law in the engagement of sinners. I think that's important. If you've noticed the title in your bulletin, it may have drawn a question mark with you. The title of this sermon is Worthy of Grace with a Question Mark. Now, I cannot take credit for that title. Even though I didn't get those exact words from my study, that was gleaned from my reading of this past week. It came from reading those men that have been dead and gone for many hundreds of years. And in reading their comments, the thing that I was struck with is this idea that God uses his law in particular situations and circumstances, and we too must learn how to use the law. When is it good to use the law? Why would we use the law? And who is worthy of grace? So that's a question that I wish to hopefully answer this morning. Now, I do want to engage us this morning with three questions. Three questions. And in these three questions, I wish, I hope to bring clarity to the question, who's worthy of grace? These questions will all support and surround that idea so as I ask them and expound upon the, the, I'm going to ask a question and then, of course, give the answer. And as I do this, hopefully we will surround the proper answer with who's worthy of grace. We'll walk away this morning, hopefully, with a clearer understanding of this, uh, at least another aspect and a clearer understanding of it from Jesus' engagement with the rich young ruler the three questions that I plan to ask is why the law? That's number one. Why the law? Number two, why did Jesus use the second table of the law as his primary use of the law? So why the law and why the second table of the law? And then the third question is, well, why the law is needed. We're going to answer those three questions. I think the third one will become more obvious as we go along. But why is the law needed in light of grace? That's important. Well, why the law? Well, if we 
look at the text of Scripture, notice how the rich young ruler came and presented himself to Jesus. We believe it was sincere. It was certainly dramatic. But it's not necessarily his posture. it's, It's not the posture that the rich young ruler took when presenting himself to Jesus. I believe all of that was sincere. I think the text supports that sincerity. You can go back and listen to the first sermon where that is addressed. But it's really the question the rich young ruler asked Jesus. And it's the question that is supported His intention of that question is supported by the answer that the rich young ruler gave to Jesus when he presented to him the second table of the law. Well, notice the question, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It was clear to Jesus that the rich young ruler had not come to a place of brokenness. He had not come to a place ready to see, ready to embrace, and ready to to deny himself and embrace the grace that the Father offers in his son Jesus. The rich young ruler was not ready for that. And that's why he asked the question the way he did. What shall I do? What can I do? And it seems clear that what the rich young ruler was intending by this was that in in all of my righteousness, in my daily obedience, what else can I add to my obedience that would ensure that I have eternal life? And that is not a preposterous question because often we fall into that same trap. We fall into that same trap. We often, one of the first things we do when we have a difficulty, when we have a problem, when we, are, when we have a struggle or a, a conundrum, we gravitate to doing What do I need to do about this? Now, that's not, obviously, there are things we should do and can do. There were some things that he could do, but yet he has not embraced the full full understanding of his own wretchedness and his own moral bankruptcy. He is still holding on to his own personal righteousness he believes he possesses a degree, this, this, a degree of righteousness that is good. And that's why he answered the question the way he did when Jesus said, listen, these are the commandments. And this is what Jesus said in verse 20. You know the commandments. You're aware of them. You've been taught them. And he cites a few for him. And what does he say in verse 21? All these things I have kept from my youth. He doesn't just say, oh, I'm doing them. He says, no, I've always kept them. He's not even close, beloved, to recognizes his own spiritual bankruptcy. He's not even close. He believes that 
He just lacks another doing in order for him to sort of have that assurance of eternal life. Now, let's think about why did Jesus use the law? Well, knowing this, Jesus uses the law because what's the purpose? I mean, what are we... uh, what are we to think about the law? I mean, some of some Christians believe the law's bad. That the law's no good. The law has no use and it ought to be thrown away. Jesus has come into the world. He has revealed the Father. He's full of grace and truth. Throw Moses out. Throw the baby out with the bathwater. And let's just have this nebulous understanding of obedience and just always default to, well, you know, uh, to err is human. I'm just a sinner, saved by grace. Well, what does God's word say about these things? Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We need to understand that in the scriptures, there are certainly two foundational covenants. There's the covenant of works do this and live, which was broken, yet remains valid. And then there's the covenant of grace that was instituted after the breaking of the covenant of works. And there are only two covenants that men can be in. There's the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. There's only two federal heads that all who have ever been born can be found in, in Adam, in creation, in the covenant of works, or Jesus Christ as the new Adam, the last Adam, as the head of the covenant of grace. But let's look at what Paul writes in Romans chapter 3 and verse 19 and 20. And Paul has to address this as we have to address it even today because there are so many people in church, out of church, that believe they are going to heaven because they are good people. He says in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law. Under the law means to be in the covenant of works. That's what that means. So that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Now notice verse 19. Notice what Paul says. He says, now we know this, that the whole world lies under the law, so to speak, by creation. They're born this way. They are born into the family uh, of Adam and they are under the law as a covenant, Meaning, beloved, and when that person dies and they stand before God on judgment day, they're going to be judged according to that covenant. They're going to be judged according to that law. They're going to be held up to that moral righteous standard. And well, if they're found lacking and found wanting, they will be cast into the lake of eternal fire. And so Paul says that, well, 
notice that those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. That means there's some form of conviction. That is, there is this understanding that when you present yourself before this law that you found yourself lacking naturally. And notice verse 20, because of the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in its sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's the point. As one is compared to God's righteous standard, the natural order of events is that then there's this great conviction created in your heart and mind. That when you're compared to this moral righteous standard that Paul says is holy and good, then you fall under this great conviction that you do not, well, you don't keep it. You're not living up to it. You have broken it. And once it's broken, it can't be repaired. And you see Jesus doing this. Jesus knows that the rich young ruler is not ready for grace. He is trying to prepare him for this grace. He's not like the parable. He's not like the sinner in the parable. Just a few verses up, is he? He's not like the sinner that goes into worship and says, have mercy upon me, O God. See, he was prepared and ready for grace. He was prepared, and that's why Jesus said when he left, he went home justified. Because he had been crushed under the weight of the law. The law had crushed him. The law had revealed to him the nature of his own heart and how he was lacking in holiness, how he was lacking in personal righteousness, and how he falls mightily short of God's, well, holiness. And so the sinner there in the parables was perfectly prepared and worthy of grace. That's what you offer somebody that's been crushed under the law. Grace. When you have someone, you know, maybe it's a child that comes to a parent and crawls up in your lap because of the message they heard that Lord's Day. And maybe there's a tear that rolls down their cheek and they say, Daddy, I don't want to go to hell. I lied to you and Mama. I'm a sinner. I'm angry with my sisters and my brothers. I don't always want to do what you want me to do. Daddy, I don't want to go to hell. They're ready for grace. Because what's happened? The law has crushed their little hearts. And it's the same way with an adult. You know, brothers and sisters, let me pose this to you. How many people are sitting in church thinking everything's fine and they've never been crushed under the law? 
never been crushed. As you will go on and see, beloved, that this is needed. This crushing is necessary. Look at Romans chapter 7. Another passage that we looked at a few weeks ago, but let's look at it again with fresh eyes. And Paul writes, he says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. I mean, what does Paul say? Paul said, look, don't blame the law for your guiltiness. Don't blame the law that you are crushed and just brought to nothing because of your own wretchedness. Don't blame, it's not the fault of the law. It's not the problem. Your heart's the problem. Your wickedness is the problem. Your straying from God is the problem. Your apostasy from God is the problem. And you've brought into your life all of this this system of self-righteousness, all of the lies that you've told yourself, all of the ways that you've tried to, to make yourself good in God's sight has hardened your heart, your conscience, and everything else. And then when the law came, it crushed you. It crushed you because it tore all of that scaffolding down. You built up this scaffolding of who you are and what you think you are before God. And what does the law do? Just like it did to the Apostle Paul. Oh, the Apostle Paul said, I am of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. I excelled in legalism. I, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel, the, the Pharisee of all, the professor of all the great Pharisees. But what happened? What happened when the law came? into Paul's life effectually when the Holy Spirit turned on his eyes and his heart. What happened? Oh, it just stripped him of all of that self-righteousness and the scaffolding of Paul's life crumbled to dust. All that Paul could say at that point is what every sinner says, woe is me, have mercy upon me, God. Well, look at Romans chapter 5 and verse 18 and following. I think this is important to recognize because, well, what Jesus is doing when he presents the law to the rich young ruler, well, he's doing the same thing that the father did at Mount Sinai. In the sort of the publishing, the republishing of the law now in the system of grace, in the scheme of grace. But why did he publish the moral law? Why did he put it in writing? Look at verse 18. He says, so then as through one man's transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of, of life to all men. 
For through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even though through the obedience of the one, the many would be made righteous. The law came in, now this is talking about Moses, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Why did, why did God publish the moral law on Mount Sinai? To tear down the self-righteousness of sinners. They were never to look at that law and go, got it, check. They were not to look at that law and say what the rich young ruler had told Jesus. I have kept all of these laws from my youth. No, they were to cry out to God for help, for mercy, for salvation. Why? Because when I'm compared to the perfect righteous standard of the law, I fall mightily short of it. Oh, I mean, there's some outward things, but beloved, remember, the law is not just those outward acts that we perform. There also governs our heart, the things we love, the things we like, the things we hate. It's not just the things that we shouldn't do. These are what Jesus did. Okay, don't commit adultery. Mm, got it. Don't steal. Got it. But it was also the positives. Honor your father and mother. Got it. Hmm. Okay, here's one thing you like. Go sell all that you have. Distribute it to the poor. But don't stop there. And then come follow me. Then you'll have everlasting life. It's the positive. It's not just things, beloved. Listen, if you're sitting here this morning and you've built your life on this, this moral understanding, well, I just don't need to do certain things, then you don't get it. You don't understand it. It's not just what you should not do. It's also what you should be doing. It's not just saying I need to avoid this. It's also saying, listen, I need to do this. Because this is pleasing in God's sight. This is pleasing in God's sight for me to avoid this. And this is pleasing in God's sight for me to do this. Now he says, the law came in so that transgression would increase. But where that transgression increased, there was grace. There, there was no sin, beloved, at that point. That is, the, the, the greatest of, of, of those sinners that, that come, like the, like the one in Luke 18, the great sinner says, Lord, I am the sinner. Lord, that, there was grace for that person. So we see, that's why Jesus used the law. And it's why we should use the law, particularly with those people that find themselves to be self-righteous. Why? Because they're not ready for grace at that point. They must be, they must have their hearts and consciences tenderized by the pounding of the law. 
until they have just given up and have no strength left. Well, that's the first question. And of course, we could go on and really unfold that more and more. And I don't want to stop there. I don't don't want us to just end as if that's the... uh, I don't want to end on a negative. Let's, let's, let's end that portion, that question, that answer on a positive. Turn to Romans 10. And I think this is going to put a capstone on the idea for you. You write these verses down and memorize them and certainly preach these verses to yourself on a regular basis, particularly when you begin leaning uh, and trusting in your own works. Romans chapter 10, I want to begin right there at verse 1. It says, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, he's talking about his countrymen, these Israelites, these Hebrews, is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not accordance with knowledge. Now, can you see that in the rich young ruler? He has this zeal for God. This perceived zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge and understanding. Verse 3, for not, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's the end of the law. That's the stopping place of the law. That is, when does the law stop pounding you to dust? When does the law stop stripping down the scaffolding that you erect in your life of your own self-righteousness? When does that stop? When you turn to Christ by faith. When you turn to Jesus When you turn to Jesus by faith, the thundering of the law stops. It ceases. Because at that point, you are no longer under the law as a covenant. You are now in Christ and grace by grace. And the law has a completely different relationship with you going forward. It's called a rule of life at that point. And we'll talk about that later. Right now, we need to talk about thunder and lightning. Christ is the end of the law. Now, beloved, you can do everything you can to obey God's law. If you're outside of Jesus and you're trying to make yourself good, you're trying to make yourself important, you're trying to make yourself uh, good in God's sight and good before men by outward obedience, you're failing. You're failing because you can't do it perfectly. You can't do it consistently. You don't do it 24-7. Just even when you go to bed and you wake up with these dreams that you have that are lustful dreams, sinful dreams, and all of the case may be, 
You can't control your own thought, your thought life. to drive you to Jesus who's the end of that law. The end of it in the sense as a covenant of condemnation. Again, nothing wrong with the law. The law's perfect. The law is a reflection of God's holy character and will. Nothing wrong with it. And we should never be guilty of condemning the law of God. What we should condemn is like Paul said, the law is good when used lawfully and rightly, but it's the sinful use of the law that's condemned, not the right use of the law. I think that makes the point. Now let's talk about the second one. Why did... Why did Jesus use the second table of the law? Now, we know why he used the law. He certainly wished to tenderize the rich young ruler's conscience and heart. He wanted to bring into the rich young ruler the understanding and knowledge of his own wretchedness. He had to see it. As as Thomas Manton said, he had to feel it. He had to feel it. What did he have to feel? He had to feel the very angst of his own soul and the the reality that he is missing eternal glory. He had to come under the pressure, if you will, of the reality and the knowledge, the understanding that he was at war with God and was under God's judgment, not his favor. And I concur with Thomas Manton's Comment, because I've seen brothers and sisters, I've seen it in myself, I've seen it in others, and I've seen it when people have come and they've thought, Pastor, I am broken, I am, I am wretched. That's why so many Christians have testified that turning their life over to Christ, putting their faith in Jesus Christ, and, and, and now as the end of that law, that thunder and that lightning, lightning and that condemnation, if you will, they said, oh, burden's been lifted from me. Because that's what it's like dragging your self-righteousness around. It's like being burdened with a thousand pound weight that you have to carry around every day. And you're dragging it, falling down. I mean, it's just, it's torture. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 11, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will what? Give you rest for your souls. I will put your souls at rest. Why? Because the soul that is trying to get to heaven by the keeping of the law is not at rest. The conscience is constantly condemning them, pointing out their inconsistencies, pointing out their their lack of love for God, their lack of love for their neighbor, pointing out their hypocrisies. That's a burden. But so why did Jesus use the second table of the law? Well, 
If you remember, and you won't remember this, but I'm going to remind you of it, when we were teaching on how uh, the heinous crime of abortion breaks all of God's commandments, when we got to the second table of the law, you remember the, the moral law, the two tables of the moral law, the first four commandments dealing and pertaining to our role in, with God, our duties to God, the last six are related to our duties to our fellow man ourselves and others. And those two tables are summarized in love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the first table. But notice the second table, Jesus says, is likened unto it. I mean, there's connected and it's similar, love your neighbor as yourself. So what's the connection? Brothers and sisters, like the rich young ruler, he would have argued till the cows come home that he loved God just as everybody else will that you'll meet. Oh, I love God. You can't tell me I'm not a Christian. You can't tell me I love, I don't love God. You don't know what I pray. You don't know how many times I pray. You don't know what I think about every day. Okay. You're right. Well, let's talk about your neighbor because like Thomas Manton said, What you think of God and the strength of your love for God will be revealed in how you treat your neighbor. The second is likened unto the first. You love God, love your neighbor. This is where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. This is the as Thomas Manton said it, he put it this way, I'm going to paraphrase him. He said, though the law has been defaced upon man's soul, the clearer portion of the law are those commandments related to their social duties. The first table of the law, that is that which pertains to God, is more obscure it's more defaced, meaning they know there's a God, but there's nothing, there's no direction to what? How they worship that God. Where do they go to learn that? From the scripture. But beloved, if you turn to, go back to Romans 2. Well, no, let's, let's begin at Romans 1. There is enough light upon the heart of man that he knows that he ought to love his neighbor in very certain ways. And this is Paul's argument. Look at verse 28. We're going to end this sermon. We're going to end that chapter and move into chapter 2. He says, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Notice all of those related to the second table of the law. And notice where, what did Paul do? He inserted right in the very midst of those what? Haters of God. What Paul is saying is, listen, the natural world, though they know better, 
despise this goodness that has been written upon their heart. For although, look at verse 32. Notice what, this is the holy word of God. Now notice, although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Verse 32 is a verse related all the way back to the covenant of works. Do this and live. But that covenant's been broken. And now that that covenant's broken, what are all men worthy of? Death. Death. And all men everywhere know that when they violate that natural order, that natural law that God has implanted upon the hearts of all men everywhere, they're worthy of death. Well, let's not stop there. Let's go over into chapter 2. Look at verse 14. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively those things in the law, these not having the law are a law unto themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their consciences bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. That is, beloved, there'll be men that'll stand before God on the judgment seat that have never come in contact with the gospel. And there are some Christians, well, they shouldn't be cast in that. They ought to be given, just let them into heaven. They didn't have an opportunity. No, they stand under the condemnation of almighty God by the covenant of works. You know what? He says, because their conscience is either excused them or brought guilt to them. And you know your conscience. You've, have you not said and done things you thought, that was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. And you stand before God and God's going to bring out a witness to all men. You know what that witness is going to be? The conscience. And no one's going to be able to hide because it's going to be their conscience that witness against them on the things that they did and didn't do according to that law that was written naturally upon their hearts without this law. So beloved, he uses the second table of the law because it's the clearer revelation in his conscience. It's the one that had the most weight. It's the one that, that, that should have been able to pierce through the hardness of his heart. It's the one that he should have contemplated truly and really if he'd have listened to his conscience. But because he didn't, because he had hardened his heart, he's hardened his conscience. What did he say to Jesus? What did he say? 
What was the sign of his hard heart and hard conscience in verse 21? All these things I have kept from my youth. He was not worthy of grace at that point. Hmm. I don't know if I'm going to have time to really open up the third answer to the question. Except, beloved, in way of application. I'm going to give you, I'm going to paraphrase something Thomas Manton said. I hope it sticks in your mind. It's related to being worthy of grace. Thomas Manton, in his comments upon the text itself, to, again, paraphrasing him, no one, all right, think about this. Who's the one that brings you to the covenant of grace? And he paints this picture. And he says, basically, beloved, It's the covenant of works that takes you by the hand and leads you to the door of grace. Without being crushed, without being brought under the conviction of the violation of God's holy law, it's the law that then ushers the sinner into the room of grace. What a beautiful picture. And in that description, we have what really is very confessional or biblical, if you will. I know some people say, well, don't talk about the confession. Talk about the word of God. Well, what we're seeing here is what the confession does teach us, and that is, is the law of, well, is the law contrary to the gospel? No, not at all. It sweetly complies with it. Isn't that a beautiful thought? The law sweetly complies to grace. They're not enemies. Brothers and sisters, there was a day in which we could have received eternal life through the keeping of the law but not once it was broken. Once it was broken, it was broken for good. could not be repaired. We had to have a mediator. We had to have a go-between. We had to have someone come in our place and keep the law perfectly. And that's why Christ is so precious to us. I read Psalm 19 as our call to worship, but let's, let's close with that psalm. Turn there with me. Because what I want us to realize, what I want us to see, law and grace are not enemies. Yes, there's the thundering. Yes, there's the judgment. Thomas Manton even says the the law grabs the sinner by the throat. 
That's a pretty violent picture, isn't it? Because the law can only condemn. The law cannot give life. It's broken. The law at that point to the sinner is nothing but judgment for the sinner. But what happens when Christ becomes the end of the law? What happens when the law ushers us into the realm of grace and we see Christ and we accept his perfect righteousness, his obedience to that law, and we put our faith and trust in him? Then what? Well, then the law becomes sweet like candy to us. It becomes a rule of faith. It becomes a rule of life. It becomes a way of practice. Look at verse, look at verse seven. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Not, not in saving the soul in that sense, but what? Restoring. Now that we have been given grace and been made alive in Christ, what does the law do? The law helps us live as the sons and daughters of God. <laughs> And we still don't do it perfectly. That's why we are in constant need of grace. We are never, beloved, to wake up on any given morning after becoming a Christian and going, you know what? Christ, all right. Christ, he's taken that thunder and lightning away. I think I'm good now. Never, never. What happened to the Galatians when they wanted to revert back to their legalism? Paul said, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? Was it, was it the obedience to the law that saved you? Huh, no. It was grace. Why? What has bewitched you? Who has tricked you? What gospel have you received instead of the one that I preached to you? I preached to you a gospel of grace. But now you want to go back to obedience? He says, how did the Spirit come into your life? Was it by grace or obedience? It wasn't through your keeping of the law that the Spirit came to you. It was by grace the Spirit came to you. He says, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Oh, we can live wise as wise sons and daughters now that grace has come and put us in the right relationship with God in Christ. The precepts of the Lord are right. Yes, rejoicing the heart. We can rejoice now in God's law because it's no longer condemning us. The condemnation has been removed in Jesus A sinner could never say that. Someone outside of Christ could never say those words because the law is nothing but a burden. The law does nothing but condemn 24-7 to the sinner. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. You know what? We, now we look at ourselves and we go, listen, I need to love this more. I, my love for this is weak. I need to strengthen this love. Oh, my Father in Christ, give me the grace. Teach me the word of God. Strengthen me in this area of my life so that I can love what you love and hate what you hate. Roll of the law. Notice in verse 10, they are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. That's because that writer has Jesus who has silenced the condemnation of the law. 
Look at the last words and we'll close. But the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, my rock, my redeemer. He's admitting his salvation. Not in the keeping of the law. By faith. Through grace. You know, brothers and sisters, when we stand before the Lord on judgment day, and all our stuff is out there. Our confidence is Christ. Our confidence is Jesus. He covers it. He not only forgives us of our sins, but he keeps forgiving us of our sins. As 1 John says, as we walk with him, his blood continues to cleanse us of all our sins. When we stand before God on judgment day and all our dirty laundries out there, we plead nothing but Christ. Nothing but Jesus. And we long to be made. We long for that new estate of glory. Never to sin again. And you know, that's, what's, that's, that's one of the things that's wretched about this life. That's, that's one of the things that we deal with even as Christians, that, that, that gnawing, that nagging. We're going to sin in a minute. We're going to sin when we eat. We're going to sin tonight. And we're going to sin against the people we care about. We're going to sin against God. What's our hope? Our hope is not in the law. Our hope is not in our own works. Our hope is in the grace of God. Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father and he bears constant witness to the Father that we are his children. Constant. Now, close with this thought. Worthy of grace? I don't know. You tell me. Have you ever been crushed? Have you ever been brought to that place that you didn't say, oh, I got about 80%, I'm about 80% weak, I'm 90% weak, but I've got 10%. I can. No, 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 no. Have you been crushed to do nothing but to cry out, have mercy on me, O oh God, the sinner. Let's pray. Now, blessed God, we, we should take time to ponder, Lord, this doctrine, this truth. There is a right use of your law. And Lord, we need to use it rightly. We need to use it rightly before our conversion and even after, Lord, yet, we admit we are full of weaknesses and, Lord, we are full of sin. Give us thankful, grateful, trusting hearts. Lord, let nothing 
obscured the vision we have right now of the sweetness of Jesus. Lord, let us truly be able to say in grace how sweet your law is to us and how it gives us wisdom, Lord, as we seek to walk faithfully, Lord, in the covenant of grace. So, Lord, if we're guilty of resting in our own strength, if we're, if we're guilty, O oh Lord, of some scaffold, if there's even if the smallest scaffold of self-righteousness, come, O oh Lord, and tear it down. Tear it down. Lord, to those that need to be crushed, crush them. Lord, those that need to have the confidence, Lord, that those that are in Christ by grace and the sweetness of that grace, Lord, bring that assurance and confidence. But glorify thy name. As you told us in your word, these things are impossible with man, but they're possible with you. In Jesus' name, amen.